beginning a brand new series this week. And uh, this is a four-week series. We're going to be a little bit off of that uh, next week with the C's being with us. Uh, we want to make sure we give them time in the service. And so we're going to start this week. Next week, the C's will be with us. And then we'll go the next three weeks for this series. And as I say, every series, I pray that you will make it a point to be here to make it a point to be involved in this series and that God would be able to use the next five weeks really to encourage you and strengthen you in that very question. Do we really believe in miracles? Do we believe God is a miracle working God? And more importantly than that, do we understand from God's word why he is a miracle working God? And what is the purpose of the miracles that we see recorded in scripture for us? And not only that, what we see him doing in our lives today. And so we're going to unpack all of that in the coming weeks, and we are so excited to do so. Uh, before we get into that, though, uh, I did want to share just real briefly, uh, many of you maybe know this or saw this yesterday, um, but we are so blessed to be able to celebrate with Dave and Dory Aldridge. Uh, they are celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. So let's give them a hand. Yes. 50 years, Dory. You are a gracious woman. I don't even know. That's amazing. That is so amazing. And so let me just encourage any younger couples here today, newly married or like myself, maybe you've been in this for just a couple years. Uh, we're, we're at 16, maybe around that age or that time. Uh, spend time with these guys. Uh, talk to them. Glean from them their wisdom. Um, it is not by accident that someone stays married for 50 years to someone else. That's just not two imperfect people coming together. That, that takes a lot of work and with them graciously working in both of them to get them to this point. And so, um, and I have to say, good job on Facebook. That was really funny. I read that. I was like, wait, they're in Hawaii. They were just, they were just here. Like they didn't go to Hawaii. And so, yeah, if you didn't get it, just go back on Facebook and check it out. Um, but that was a really well, well played. That was really good. Got me pretty good. I was like, wow, they're, they're awesome in Hawaii and everything. And then she's like, we woke up in rainy Michigan. And I was like, what? I'm so confused. But no, we are so excited for you guys. Congratulations on that and many more to come. Uh, again, this morning, we are looking into this idea of miracles. And the title of the series is When Pigs Fly. And some of us have that mindset about miracles, that, that yeah, I'll believe it when pigs fly. And so I want to just take a moment and I want to encourage you to think through scripture and just think about a miracle in God's word, something that God performed, whether it be in the Old Testament or the New Testament, something that was a miracle of God, something that was just God supernaturally changing a situation, moving in a situation. And so I just want to take a second and, and we're not going to try to get to everybody, obviously, but I just want to hear from you. Someone tell me 
a miracle that when you think of the miracles of God and the word of God that comes to your mind, it, it's one of, maybe we say it, one of your favorites, one that always comes to mind. Who's got a favorite miracle? Go ahead, Lynn. Okay, the way Joseph saved his family from the famine, the way God superseded in that moment to give that wisdom and to work that all out. Absolutely. Anyone else? Okay, yeah, the parting of the Red Sea, right? That's always an amazing thing to think about that God was able to do that, right? To have power over creation, to be able to, to change that situation for them to walk over on dry ground, right? What else? Lazarus, okay. Raising Lazarus from the dead, okay, absolutely. Okay, restoring a blind man's sight, right? Yeah, Judy? Yep, yeah, raising the, 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 serv- or the daughter from, from the dead, absolutely. Anything else? Any? When the donkey talks, right? Balaam's donkey, that's a great one. Okay, a little weird, a little weird. I always look at my dog when he's looking at me, and I'm like, I really hope we don't have like one of those recreated miracles right here, and he starts talking to me. I feel like he's trying to communicate with me, like food, 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 you know? So that's a great one. Okay. How is that a miracle? Right. Yes. 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 And, and then, and, yes. And in that story, right? Remember Jesus revealed things to her that as soon as he revealed those things, she said, I perceive you're a prophet, right? How do you know all these things about me? That, that's God displaying that all knowing attribute, right? And we, and we can go on and on. There's so many, I mean, Jesus walking on water, right? The fact that he was able to do that, it's miraculous. And if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, and if we're really honest, and we referenced this verse last week, and we're not going to turn there for time's sake, but we talked about, we finished up our hope series last week, and we talked about hope for the doubter. That I think if we're really honest, we read these things in Scripture, and we're in awe of them. Man, that's amazing that God did those things. But there's a part of us, if we're being really honest in our flesh, there's a part of us that goes, yeah, but, I mean, come on. Could God really do that again? And I know what you're going to say. You're thinking, oh, no, no, I believe my God can do it. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. But if we're being real with God in our Christian lives, there are moments where we read these things and we go, Lord, as the father said in Mark, Lord, I want to believe. Lord, I, I do believe, but help my unbelief. See, maybe you can think of a time in your own life. It's great to think about these things in scripture, but maybe you can think of a time in your own life where God moved in a miraculous way. And when all was said and done, you knew without a shadow of a doubt, it was God working in that thing and God orchestrating that thing. And you stand back and you go, God, all glory to you because you did this thing. You can think of a moment in your own life when God moved in a way that you would step back and say and identify as truly miraculous. In our day and age today, I believe there's two, two ways that most of us view, or most believers maybe, or Christians, view miracles. They either deny anything supernatural, in sense they say, well, God can't really do those things. 
And many of you have heard that I believe it was Thomas Jefferson that had this mindset and he cut out of his Bible all the, the miraculous things that Jesus did. Because he just couldn't believe that God or that Jesus was able to do those things. So we remove all miracles. It's just, nah, I just, that was, God really can't do those things. So some people have that mindset that there's just no real such thing as miracles. Or we try and make everything a miracle. We make everything a miracle. There's either no miracles or everything is a miracle. And while I understand what people mean when they say that miracles happen every day, I get that. So follow me here. Don't, don't cut me off yet. Okay. Don't cast stones at me yet. Cause I know that makes really good posts and t-shirts and bumper stickers, but just hear me out. We either think there's no such thing as miracles, but just, there's just no way it's not possible. Or we make everything a miracle. And when people say miracles happen every day, you should maybe encourage that those are not necessarily miracles by what we see in God's word. That maybe those aren't really miracles as what we see in God's word. They're blessings. I mean, think about it this way. They're called miracles, not ordinaries. Right? Right? I mean, is, is that a true statement? They're not called ordinaries. They're called miracles. I fully believe we should appreciate and be thankful for the tremendous blessings in this life. But let's not lower the powerful moves of God we read of in his word as just ordinary things that happen every day. If we're being honest, this is not how those that saw those moves responded in the word of God. When Lazarus came out of the tomb where people are like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. This just... Every day, this kind of stuff just happens. When Jesus walks on water, oh, yep, that's fine. I saw six guys do it last week. It's fine. It happens. Remember, when the people of God saw these moves of God and the word of God, they responded in awe and astonishment. They were just overcome. They couldn't believe what was happening. And this is true both in the New and Old Testament. So I want to kind of start the series off with giving us a little bit of a, a precursor, a warning, if you will, to how we even view miracles when we use that word. If the people in God's word, when they saw miracles, responded in shock and awe and wonder and astonishment because it was something that was miraculous. It was God moving in a way that they didn't expect, didn't understand, and they couldn't really figure out how it was happening. Then when we see God move in miraculous ways, we should not just say, oh, it's just like every other day. I think we're lowering down that move of God, and we're not truly appreciating what God is doing in those moments. Over the next five weeks, as we've already said, we'll be talking about miracles of healing, miracles of protection, and miracles of provision. And I honestly pray that walking through this topic will encourage all of us to grow in our faith and believe God is able. To grow in our faith and believe that God is able. So I want to lay before us a text. And I, I pray that this text will become kind of like the, the framework in which we're going to look through to understand this working of miracles over the next five weeks. And so Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to start. And again, this is kind of like the text for this series. It gives us kind of a principle, a starting point that we can look to. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seats there, it's page 824. So if you're using one of the Bibles provided, it's page 824. 
And we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to look at two familiar verses that I pray will set the stage for what we want to hopefully see God do in the next coming weeks. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Now unto him, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul writing to the church of Ephesus, to believers, says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Verse 20 again. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, not our power. He's not doing those things in our power, but there's a power that's working in us that is the same power that God uses to do these things that are exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. I'm going to ask that we would pray and ask God to open our minds and our understanding to not only what he would have for us through his word, but that we would think through this topic maybe even differently than we thought of it when we came in this morning. Maybe that we would just step back and say, God, I don't want to come to your word with preconceived ideas this morning. I want to come with just an open slate. Lord, just teach me from your word what it actually says. Don't let me read into it what I want it to say. Help me to read out of it what it really says. Let's pray and ask God to do that this morning. Father, we ask that very thing. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to draw from the word of God what we should be thinking about this topic of miracles. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom. And I know sometimes when we go into your word, Lord, we come in with different ideas, things we've already thought, things we've already maybe even been taught. I pray that we would come in and say, Lord, give me discernment and wisdom. The Lord, that if there's something I have been taught that conflicts with your word, I pray that you would give me an awareness of that. And Lord, I pray that I would take your word in context. We pray, Lord, that we would that we would be students before you today, that you would teach us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lead and guide, direct us, Lord, in our understanding and our wisdom. Give us what we need. And Lord, we are so thankful that as we begin this series of messages, we know at the onset that you are a miracle working God. You are a powerful God. And so I pray that we would know that at the beginning, but Lord, I pray that as we even make that statement, that we would desire to have wisdom in how that may play out in our lives and in the lives of others, that we would look to you and think of these things in the right way. Lord, and when I say the right way, I mean how your word lays it before us. And so Father, we thank you for for all of (laughs) Ephesians chapter three and verse 20 tells us something that I think is so powerful But again, if we're being real, there's been times in my Christian life where I've said, that sounds great. Man, I love reading verse 20. I don't know if I fully believe verse 20 at every point in my life, but I love verse 20. I don't know if I've really prayed in my Christian life. I don't know if I've really prayed every single prayer believing verse 20. I think there's some times in my Christian life where I've prayed and I thought, yeah, your word says you can do this, but... And listen, I think that's true of all of us at points in our life. 
We've all wanted to believe verse 20 is true. But here's the reality. Whether you believe it, whether I feel it, whether I pray it or not, it is true. It's true, is it not? Amen. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Think for a moment about that statement. Above all that you can ask or think. That means greater than anything you can imagine. He's able to do anything and everything beyond our understanding. So when we read this verse, how does it lay before us an understanding of miracles? Well, I want us to see in verse 20, it gives us this idea that he is able. Some of you, if you're writing your Bibles or if you're taking notes, just write down, he is able. I don't know how God's applying that to your life right now. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what struggle you're facing. He is able. Do you have an unsaved family member that you've been praying for? You've been praying that that they would come to know Christ? Well, listen, God is able to save them. Now, he's not going to force them to get saved, but he is able. And when they, and if they, choose to repent of their sin, turn and trust in Christ, he is able to save them, no matter how far they've gone. And that's true of all of us. He is able to work in that situation that you don't know how it's going to work out for his glory. He's able to do that. He's able to give you peace in the midst of the storm when you don't know what's going where. He's able to give you a peace that you're sitting in the middle of the worst time of your life and he is there with you. He is able. Our God is able. There is nothing he cannot do. But look at verse 21, because again, I said this is kind of laying the framework for our understanding of miracles. And I believe this has to be taken into consideration. Verse 21. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Guess what? When Paul wrote this to the Ephesian church, it's just as true for us today as we're reading it. That the point of all that God is able to do is that he would be glorified through the church. That the reason God does what God does is so that he is glorified above all things. This is a good point to just give a little reminder that you were created for the glory of God. You were not created for your own glory. You were not created to build the biggest castle on earth, to have the most toys and all the stuff. You were created and formed with purpose. And that purpose is to glorify your creator. And we find that purpose fulfilled and realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ when we receive him as Savior. Now I'm able to fulfill that purpose and glorify God with the gifts and the talents and the time and the life that he's given me. And we live for his glory. And so listen, all the things he does, these miraculous things that he does, it's for his glory. Now, we're not going to go into detail on every example that was given, but think about your example that you shared. Or maybe you didn't share an example, but you have one. Think about for just a moment how that miracle, that move, that act of God glorified God in and through that miracle. Think about how God in the Old Testament was glorified through one of those miracles we see with the splitting of the Red Sea and so many others. Think of how Jesus brought glory to the Father and proved his divinity by the miracles that he performed from Lazarus, raising Lazarus from the dead or to the daughter or to any other one. You see, this is the key. We love to think that he is able, but we get it messed up when we start thinking that God is doing miracles for your glory and not his own. God does not do miracles in our lives so that we can sit back and go, wow, this life is really comfortable and easy and just kick back and relax. 
He's doing these things for his glory. And so to lay before us a framework, I wanted to start there. Now, it's great to think that he is able. And we should believe, because the word says it's true, that he is able. But in Christian circles, and I'm not going to say it's been heightened in the last so many years, but I feel as though in the last 20 years or so, I see more and more things, maybe even 40 years, going back even into the things that I've seen from the 80s and things like that, different things that have happened in Christian circles. And there's been a fascination with miraculous moves of God. There's been a fascination with the miraculous. And we have to stop and say, understandably so. I mean, we would love to see God move in ways that we see him move in the word of God. And God is able. But again, we have to just step back and say, okay, but, but what do we learn from God's word as far as the purpose and the reason and the intent of these miraculous moves? I have to be honest here. I question, and this is just my own opinion, but I wonder how much of that fixation with the miraculous has led us to looking for miracles. I'll put those in quotes, miracles, and creating miracles in some Christian circles in order to merely experience what we believe to be the supernatural. In some Christian circles, there is such a push to create the miracle, to make the miracle, to experience the miracle. And you've seen things like this, whether it be on TV or YouTube or any other platform like that. I, I, I'm sorry, when somebody takes their suit cut off and starts flinging it at the audience and the audience is falling on the ground and that's supposedly a miraculous move of God, I question that. I question, I go, really? I don't see that. When people have miraculous healing uh, festivals and tent meetings and supposedly healing all these people of all these diseases, but there's a hospital down the road with a cancer wing, why aren't you over there healing people? Why do they got to be screened and processed and brought up on stage and only certain types of diseases can be healed tonight? See, this is the thing. In Christian circles, so many times we just eat it up because it looks good. It seems miraculous. But I, I, I promise you, church, we need to be discerning to step back and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Who's being glorified here? What's the point of this? Does this line up with Scripture? And so I want to let you know at the onset, we're, we're believing God is able. And we're going to talk about how he is able. But I also want to let us know there are things in Christian circles that have sold books and made movies and put on TV that, that may not be of God. And I think it's okay for the church to step back and say, let me put, let me put scripture before my eyes and really evaluate what I'm seeing right now. Well, that's just being judgmental, pastor. You're not supposed to be judgmental. But you know what the Bible says? That I am called to actually discern the spirits. First John says to discern the spirits to see what is of God. And when somebody says, this is a move of the Holy Spirit, but it completely contradicts the word of God, takes glory from God, or denies the power of salvation in Christ alone, I would challenge that is not the spirit of Christ. One of the main works of the Spirit of God is to point us to fixation with the supernatural. But in many Christian churches today, this morning, there is such a fixation with the supernatural, which in turn means a fixation with the Spirit, that Jesus is barely talked about. 
As long as we see some visible demonstration of what we perceive to be spirit on the stage. So we want to set the stage to say we're going to be discerning over the next so many weeks. We're not saying God is unable. He is able and he can. Amen? He can. But we're going to make sure that we're using God's word to say, is it really him? Because he's going to receive the glory. All right, we got to buckle up. We got to go. Okay. You guys got to throw something at me. That's just the introduction. We're not even through the introduction yet. All right. So this morning, we're going to be talking about the miracle of deliverance. The miracle of deliverance, that we've been delivered. The word deliverance means different things to different people. It can be defined different ways in your circumstance, how you've experienced deliverance from a situation. But the word itself is defined as the action of being rescued or set free. You've been delivered in Christ this morning. You've been rescued and set free. Amen. Now we're going to talk about how that's a miracle that God has done. And so we want to look at truly the greatest and most foundational miracle that has ever taken place is the miracle of deliverance that we find in salvation. We have been delivered from two primary enemies. We've been delivered, rescued, and set free from two enemies. If you're taking notes, the first one is self. We've been delivered from the enemy of self. Romans chapter 7. Go over there with me. Page 795, if you're using one of the Bibles provided. But Romans chapter 7, verse 24. So Romans 7, again, if you're using a Bible provided, page 795. So Romans chapter 7 and verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) I read that and I go, Paul, you and me, we get each other. Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Paul is crying out here, as many of us have, and we wrestle with this battle that takes place in our flesh between the flesh and the spirit. The problem is the sin in us. When we talk about being delivered from self, there's a problem, and the problem is the sin in us. It truly requires a miracle to set us free. It requires the miraculous to set us free from this body of sin and death. Paul spends chapter 7 of Romans wrestling with this idea of sin nature, his own sin, the wrestling of, I do what I don't want to do, but I want to do this, but I don't do that, I do this, and that whole back and forth. And his conflicting desires that I want to please God, but I find myself not always pleasing God, and it kills me that I I can't please God the way I want to please God because I know that I'm in this flesh. And that conflict I think many of us can relate with. I think all of us in this room can relate with the idea of having the move of God pull you towards something of God, but then you have that flesh that wants to pull you away. And see, before Christ, all we had was this this flesh, this sin nature. We had no hope of ever pleasing God because we're in our sin. We needed to be delivered from this body of sin and death. And Paul cries out in a rhetorical sense, who will rescue me? Who will deliver me? And then he says in the very next verse, who delivered him? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. 
See, he understood I need to be delivered and I was delivered in Christ. What does Paul and all of us need? He needs to be delivered from this body of sin and death. And Christ created the opportunity by going to the cross. We're going to talk about a little bit here and delivering him as he delivers us. It is in the body that the sinful nature resulting from the fall of man has been passed down from Adam to each of us. See, sin is not a problem out here. Sin is not some external problem that that we can deal with out here. It's an internal problem. It is a problem in us. We have sinned before God. We are sinners before God, and we need to be delivered. I love what one author said in regards to the deliverance we have received in Christ. Throughout the Bible, we find that God is our deliverer. He says, think about it. He delivered Noah from the flood, Jacob from the famine, Joseph from the prison, Israel from Egypt, David from the giants, the Hebrew children from the furnace, and Daniel from the lions. Deliverance is a great theme in the Bible, and God is the deliverer. Jesus taught us to pray every day, deliver us from evil. We need deliverance every day, even from ourselves, from this body, which is a body of death. The author concludes this way. Thankfully, Jesus Christ has provided this deliverance for every person he has saved. See, we were in sin and death, and that's all we knew. And then Jesus, by his miraculous power, offers to us salvation. We receive that free gift by repenting of our sins. We turn to him, and now we are delivered. We are free. Romans 6, write it down, read it. Our sin, our flesh has been put to death. Spiritually speaking, we are delivered and set free. However, we're still in this body, and we are tempted to live as though we've not been set free. We're tempted to live as though we've not been rescued. And we're tempted to say and think and do things that would not please him, but would please the flesh. But the reality is we have been delivered. One day, praise God, we will step from this world, step from this body. We will see him and we will be like him, John says. But in the middle time, so we've been delivered, we're going to be delivered, amen. But we are being delivered. That our standing with Christ is sure. But in this life, we wrestle, as Paul says here. He realizes, I've been delivered. I mean, do you notice that he says in verse 25, I have been. I thank God for doing this. Romans 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. See, we've been delivered. But the reality is we still wrestle, right? There's still that conflict. So what do we do? We don't get better at being better and do better. No, we realize we've already been delivered. And we live in that understanding because of the work of Christ. How was this miracle of deliverance completed? How is it that we were rescued from self? Two key things to think about here. The work of Christ on the cross. Again, this is why Romans 6 And half of Romans chapter 7 makes it clear that when Christ died on the cross, we died with him and rose again in the newness of life through salvation. In just a few moments, we're going to celebrate with the one that is coming to be baptized. And we're going to rejoice. That's going to be awesome. And there's 
we always say, out of baptism, we always say, raised to walk in the newness of life. Because not that baptism saves us, but in Christ, we, through the cross, have been given newness of life. We have been delivered and set free to live in this new life. When we believe this truth, as mysterious as it is, and yield to God at the moment of temptation, we experience practical deliverance from our sin. See, we've been delivered. We are being delivered. And when I realize that and surrender to him instead of the temptation, I'm practically experiencing that temptation in this life, or that deliverance from that temptation in this life. See, it is the work of Christ on the cross that has made this miracle possible. Notice how it has nothing to do with you. Notice how it has nothing to do with your ability. You don't rescue yourself or deliver yourself. You are in need of rescuing. But praise God that Jesus came, that he went to the cross, that he died on that cross and rose again to offer to us deliverance. But it's not only through the work of Christ on the cross that this miracle of deliverance is completed. It is also the work of Christ in sending the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught us that he would send the Holy Spirit to be our comforter or our helper to aid us in obeying his commandments. See, the way we find practical deliverance is to surrender not only to the word of God, to the calling of Christ, but also to the spirit of God, to be filled with the spirit so that we will obey the commandments of God and not give into the the commandments or the desire of the flesh. By depending on his strength, what do we read in Ephesians? The power that works in us. What is the power that's working in you as a follower of Christ? It is the spirit of God. And that power is available to you by depending on his strength instead of our weakness. We can see our flesh overcome by the spirit and succeed in living right by his power. We don't live right to gain his favor. No, no, we've already been delivered. And this has to be, I know I've repeated this a few times, it has to be foundational. We have been delivered. Now we obey his commandments out of gratitude, thankfulness, and a desire to please him. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, write it down, a great encouragement of that reality. Through the work of Christ, we are saved and set free from self. From the work of Christ and the giving of the Spirit, we are saved and set free from self. However, we are also rescued and set free from Satan. So I say we have two enemies we've been delivered from and rescued from. The first one is self that we've been delivered and set free from ourselves and that sinful nature, that we can have victory over that temptation that calls to us. And let me just say again, I know, I'm not naive enough to think it's not true. I know that there is somebody sitting in this church right now that is being tempted to do something that God would have you not to do. And the culture's cool with it. Your friends are cool with it. Your flesh is cool with it. Coworkers are cool with it. The world is fine. But the flesh is calling you to this thing. And you know as a follower of Christ, it is not of God. And you're tempted to say, yeah, but it's fine. No one really cares. No one will ever know. No, church, God sees. God knows. And I want to encourage you, surrender no longer to that thing that will not satisfy, that will not fulfill, that will lead you down a road of destruction and chaos. Well, it's not that big of a deal, preacher. You don't know. Trust me on this. 
not only by my own foolishness where I've made decisions and then had to reap the consequences, but on the word of God. The longer you surrender to that sin temptation, it will get easier to surrender next time and the next time and the next time. No, church, live in the calling that God has placed before you to live in the abundant life, John 10. That is to live in the fullness of Christ and say, no, I don't want the scraps the world throws on the floor. I want to sit at the feast with my king and enjoy the fullness of his salvation. And so church, you can be delivered. You have been delivered in Christ and you will be delivered. But not only is it the self that we are rescued and delivered from, it is Satan, our spiritual enemy, our adversary. Ephesians chapter six, let's turn over there. Ephesians chapter six, again, a popular passage. Again, page 826, if you're using the Bibles provided. Page 826. I have no idea what page it's on for anyone else. But Ephesians chapter six. You know, it's funny when I say that I have this feeling that many people look up to the, see what page it is. I don't know if you did that or not. I'm not calling you out. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm just saying, I know there's a temptation there to do that. Ephesians six and verse 12. The Bible says this. And we know Paul was Baptist. Amen. You might say, what are you talking about? We're not going to read it, but look at verse 10, just the beginning. Finally. And then he talked for half a chapter. So we know he's Baptist. In closing, 25 minutes later. Okay. Verse 12, Ephesians 6. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Man, if we could get this in our world today. Your neighbor who has a different political view than you, a different view on religion than you, a different view on many things than you, is not your enemy. Okay, some of you didn't hear that. Your neighbor, that person in the community that thinks different than you, that acts different than you, that does things that you don't agree with, that are still wrong things, they are not your enemy. A few more got it. Okay, we're getting there. I mean, if we could get this in our world today, could you imagine the, the impact the church could make? Stop seeing other people as your enemy. This doesn't mean we go just arm in arm into sin and into compromise. No, of course not. We stand against things that are, that are sinful. We speak truth. But Paul says, not John says, Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. See, those people in our world that don't know Christ, that are doing things that are ungodly, that are sinful, we need to call that out and say that is wrong. There's nothing wrong with that, but we better speak truth and love. And realize that they are people that Christ wants us to share the gospel with. And to encourage to know Christ, that they may come to know salvation. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. See, Paul is saying here that we wrestle in a spiritual arena that there are these spiritual enemies and forces that war against us. This is the whole point of using the symbolic language of the armor of God to, to pre prepare ourselves for the battle, to be ready spiritually, to go into the world and face spiritual attack. And as we talk about this issue of deliverance, this miracle of deliverance, it starts with self, but it doesn't just stop there. We have also been rescued and delivered from our spiritual adversary, Satan. There are some mistakes that we make in this area. 
Some, again, we tend to overemphasize demonic influence. Some believers overemphasize demonic influence. This is kind of the phrase, a demon around every corner. This is that mindset that everything is a demonic attack. Everything is a spiritual battle where, yes, obviously Satan is the only one that's warring against me. That's why this is going on right now. Every attack is a demonic attack for some. And I think sometimes we do that because it's easier to blame Satan to look in the mirror and say it's self. But James 1 says that we have this flesh in us still that lures us away into sin. See, he puts a lot of it on us. So many of us, we go, well, Satan made me do it. Satan is so not concerned with you right now. It's not even funny. Because you just keep taking yourself out of the race. You keep taking yourself out of God's call in your life. Why would he waste investing resources in you when you're doing it to yourself? So again, we we can overemphasize this. It just consumes our thinking. And again, not in a biblical sense. We're doing this in in the wrong sense. We're overemphasizing demonic influence. The other side of that coin, obviously, is we underemphasize demonic influence. Uh, We deny all spiritual warfare. It's either everything is spiritual warfare and demonic attack, or there's no such thing. That's just language in scripture. It's fairy tale stuff. I don't really believe that. One author said this, don't assume every problem is a result of demonic influence. Don't assume any problem isn't a result of demonic influence. So we have to look at each situation we're going through, each trial, struggle, attack, and prayerfully consider, Lord, is this of the enemy? Is this of self? Do I, am I in the wrong? Am I living in disobedience? Is there, is there something, uh, sin that I'm committing that's bringing these consequences? And I'm not saying God's going like, oh, you messed up. I'm going to bring some of this. It's the natural flow. You reap and you sow. If you reap a sinful choice, you're going to sow consequences. That's what I'm referring to. But there are times in our lives where Satan will, or demonic influences will, try to oppress or come against us. Sometimes it's just the world we live in. Sometimes we go through trials and things because we just live in a fallen world. So we have to step back and say, okay, before I jump down one way or the other, let me just consider this from a biblical point of view. What is this that's coming against me? And what should my response be? We tend to either blame Satan for everything or pretend he doesn't exist. As we check that out, we did a sermon series back in March called When the Devil Knocks. We have a real enemy that we must be aware of. He is a roaring lion, the Bible says. And he is a real enemy that will come against us. That will come against the church. That will come against the things of God. However, we have an equally real victory over that enemy. Amen? Yes, he is an enemy. And he, we need to look at him, as Peter says, soberly. With the right kind of thinking. That means we, we take him serious as an enemy and a threat. But we better keep that sober thinking and remember, oh no, but I need to think of this rightly. And rightly, yes, he's a real enemy, but I'm also really overcoming him in Christ. I'm already more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And so Satan will not quit attacking, battling with us, even if we've won the war. See, just because we've won the war doesn't mean Satan's going to go, okay, I quit. No, no, no. There's going to be little battles and little attacks to try to get us discouraged, distracted, off point. To get us to think the wrong things, to get us to move in the wrong directions. And he will do that even though we've already overcome. He will not stop. 
And so we do have a spiritual enemy we need to be aware of. But do not overemphasize demonic influence. Realize that there's sometimes we go through things because of our own choices. Sometimes we go through things because we live in a fallen world and it's the sinful choices of others. And ultimately, yes, we know that Satan is working in those that don't know Christ. But ultimately, we prepare to go into every day with the knowledge of God's word and the truth of our salvation. And whatever comes our way, we're able in Christ to overcome. So when we think about this idea of being delivered from satanic forces, we have to ask the question, when Satan's forces attack us, what might they do? Well, there's a couple things I want to give you here. And I'm going to give you the points and then the reference. And so if you're taking notes, jot it down. If you want a copy of my notes, I can send you the digital copy, a printed copy, whatever. You can have all the, all the references that we've given if, you, if that would benefit you in your Christian walk. But if you want to just take these notes down, that's fine as well. So what do demonic forces do? The first thing we see them doing, and we're just going to give them to you one, two, three, real quick. The first thing we see is they tempt you to sin. 2 Timothy 2.26. 2 Timothy 2.26 Demonic forces will tempt us to sin. 2 Timothy 2, 26. They distract you from God's will. They distract you from God's will. 1 Timothy 4, 1. 1 Timothy 4, 1. And they will inflict suffering. We see this in Matthew chapter 17, verse 15, and verses 17 and 18. So they inflict suffering Matthew 17, verse 15, and verses 17 and 18 of that same chapter. So we do see, if we see some things in our lives, we can start to kind of discern, is this self, is this the world, or is this demonic attack? And if it is demonic attack, then I need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, you need to strengthen me. Give me wisdom. Help me to be in your word. Remind me that I've already overcome. We have been given victory over the forces of darkness in Christ. Ephesians 6, 12, and 13. I want to read this again and just add in verse 13. Um, came across this in the, in the New Living Translation, and I like the way that this translation phrased it. Ephesians 6, and verses 12 and 13 says this, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will, sta- you will still be standing firm. And then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. See, we don't stand in our strength, Ephesians 3.20. It's the power working in us. And after the battle's over and we stand victorious, we don't stand and glorify self. No, no, no. We glorify him. That is why we overcome. So in conclusion, I want to ask just a couple questions for application. Do you and I believe that we have been and can be delivered in Christ? If you are saved, do you believe that you have been rescued? Or do you still think and fight with the temptation that you did something to earn it? Are you and I, are we living testimonies of the miracle that we have experienced? What do we read about in the Bible? When the disciples were asked to stop teaching of Jesus, they said, how can we stop saying what we've seen and what we've heard? We have to do it. 
So are you a living testimony of the miracle that you've experienced? The disciples said it clearly. We cannot help but share all that we've experienced, all that we've seen. See, it doesn't start with our experience. It starts with the truth of God's word, that he saves us and delivers us. But then we, with that, sharing that truth, we add into that the story of God delivering us and how he set us free from self and from Satan. You see, the greatest miracle that can ever take place is when we went from dead to life in Christ. That is the greatest miracle God has ever performed, taking wretched sinners undeserving and turning them into sons and daughters of God and all by grace through faith. I'm going to ask that we bow our heads right there where we are as we spend the time of invitation just responding to what God has done. Maybe right there where you are, as you begin to pray, you would ask God, God, remind me of what I've been set free from. Lord God, remind me that you have rescued me from self and from Satan. That I don't need to fear demonic forces or spiritual enemies, that I have been set free. Father, maybe you would pray, Lord, give me wisdom in how to live in a way that reflect that truth. Maybe as you're there praying, you would come in just a moment and bend a knee and say, Lord, I just want to thank you. I just want to praise you that when I was in my sin, that you demonstrated your love for me and that you came and died for me. You've delivered me. And Lord, if you can take me from death to life, then there's nothing you cannot do. And so maybe you'd come this morning and bend a knee and say, Lord, I want to believe that you are a God who is able that you are a God that can do more than I can even imagine. I want to believe that, Lord. Maybe you're here this morning as you continue to pray and, and you don't know Christ as your Lord and personal Savior. You've gone to church before, you've read the Bible, you've tried to be a good person, but maybe right there in your seats as you have your head bowed and, and you, maybe you would just be honest with yourself and honest with God and say, you know what, I don't know Christ. I've never received Christ as my Savior then maybe this morning you would, right there where you are, that you would just cry out to him and say, Lord, I confess my sin before you. I ask that you would save me from my sin. And I thank you that you would show your grace to me, that I would live for you. Whatever it is that God is doing, would you respond to him this morning? Father, as we spend this time of invitation just responding to you and applying what you've given to us, I pray, Lord, that we would be open to you. Holy Spirit, that we would just receive what you're doing in our lives right now, that you are moving and speaking and leading and, and drawing us back into some truth from your word. I pray that we would respond in a favorable way. Lord, help us to use discernment when we think of these things, that you would be glorified above all things. Lord, in whatever you're doing, I pray that we would respond. I would give you all the glory and all the praise. And thank you, Lord, that you are able. When I am not, when I cannot you are able. And so thank you for that, Lord. May we praise you for that this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? As we are lighting a song of invitation, would you come and respond? Maybe bend a knee in prayer, or maybe there in your seats, whatever God is doing, would you respond to him this morning?